Hi, I'm Rebecca Diem, and this is Read the North, a podcast about Canlet from Toronto's favorite book festival. On today's episode... Wait, did you just hear that? I swear I just heard something. You can hear that too, right? I, I can't tell if the mic is picking it up. I had to come into the studio after hours to record, and I thought I was alone, but... I swear, I'm hearing footsteps in the hallway. Oh my god, you guys. I can see someone moving through the window. It looks like they're coming this way. I'm gonna hide. Ow! Becky! Did you just throw a book at me? You scared me! I hear the curtains. I didn't think you were coming in tonight. Uh... Well, I was just nearby, and I thought I would see how the intro was coming, but... Well, I was actually just in the middle of it. Well, I mean, sorry, don't let me stop you. (sighs) Okay. As I was saying, on today's episode of Read the North, it's time to dust for fingerprints, round up the suspects, and stay out of the basement. Because today, we're talking about mystery, thriller, and horror novels. I have to admit, personally, I'm a total scaredy cat. I don't find myself fascinated by murder. Reading late into the night to have the pants scared off me isn't my idea of a good time. But honestly, that's what made this episode so fascinating to put together. Because for a lot of people, including my husband Jimmy, there's nothing they love more than a book that keeps them up well past their bedtime, voraciously reading on to discover who done it or what fresh horrors will be unleashed on the protagonist. And wherever your personal tastes fall on the spectrum of scariness, by the end of this episode, I think you'll understand why these stories are so appealing. Last episode, we talked to romance readers and writers who made a strong case for why it's good to feel good. But, turns out feeling bad can also feel good, especially within the confines of a well-worn paperback. Our first guest is a Canadian author topping the bestseller lists with her latest mystery thriller, A Death at the Party. And as a former teacher, we were honored to have her school us on the genre. My name is Amy Stewart, and I am a novelist. A Death at the Party is my fourth novel. I wrote it um, over the course of about two years, and my first three novels were what I call a linked series. So three mystery novels that had the same, you know, primary characters. But once that series was over, I dove into something quite different. And that's a death at the party. Would you consider yourself like a mystery writer, a thriller writer, both, neither, all of the above? I would say all of the above. Like I sort of use those terms interchangeably, but I th- I love writing plot heavy page turner books. Like I, I want to write something that people have a hard time putting down. So I've heard my books called all of the above. And so I just sort of go with it. I'm not, I'm not uh, <laughs> married to any. Yeah. I've always thought that the hardest part of writing a mystery would be figuring out all the, the twists and turns mm-hmm. and what clues <laughs> to see along the way. Like, how do you figure that out? 
So I'm actually teaching um, a creative writing class at Sheridan was well, a workshop. So that so it's pretty senior level students. And so we talk a lot about that. And I'm finding that I have to articulate to them those elements that you're talking about. Like how do you how do you calibrate when you're writing a mystery or a thriller? And you want to drop crumbs, but you don't want to be too leading, right? So so you want to drop enough crumbs so that when the person gets to the end of the story, they understand that the outcome was a possibility all along. But you don't want them to guess the ending like on page 25. So it's that it's a calibration. Like you have to figure out how much information you're giving them about each character and, and pulling back and just really, really, that's for me, the whole editing process is about that calibration. Readers have been tearing through whodunits since the days of Agatha Christie, but a handful of recent high profile on-screen projects have brought a new level of mainstream interest to the genre. To name a few, there's Ryan Johnson's Knives Out Mysteries, Kenneth Branagh's Poirot film adaptations, Hulu's Only Murders in the Building, Apple TV's The After Party, Peacock's Poker Face, and even indie cinema darlings A24 got on the murder mystery train with 2022's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Meanwhile, talented new mystery authors have stealthily taken over the Canadian fiction bestseller lists. So what is it about this genre that people are flocking to? I think that especially these days, like, you know, we've had a collectively in the universe has had a rough few years, right? And I think people appreciate feeling transported, you know, where you dive into a book and you're carried along by the story instead of having to work for it. And especially if I'm deep in my own writing process, my brain is pretty um, pretty spent. And so if I'm going to keep reading, I need something. It's not even that it's light. It's not light. I, don't, I wouldn't call my books light, but I think that they are, I, or at least I try to make them, especially this one, A Death at the Party, transporting, where the reader feels absorbed by the story and they don't want to put it down. And, you know, when you watch a movie and when the movie ends, you almost blink like, what, you know, where was I for those two hours? <laughs> and, and that's, if you can achieve that in a book, um, readers need that. To be totally immersed in a story, there's almost nothing more satisfying. Well, except maybe the payoff of a perfectly seated twist ending. And like any genre, there are certain conventions and tropes that mystery readers have been trained to notice. So for the writers, just like with romance, one of their biggest challenges is figuring out how to blend satisfaction with surprise. And for the readers, half the fun is seeing how new books iterate on the work that came before. Amy, for one, is quick to acknowledge similarities and credit her inspirations. But that doesn't mean a reader will be able to predict what's going to happen next. I wanted to say that the opening of A Death at the Party kind of reminds us a bit of The White Lotus, the way that it opens up with like the reader knowing that someone has died, but we're not sure yes. who. Yes. It, you know what? That's so, that's called a why done it 
Uh-huh. And I read one. Um, I oh, why I done to, it? I've never oh, heard why that. done it. I've so never heard I that read before. one years ago, and I'm going to say it was Ruth Rendell. She wrote the Why Done It, where you see the murder on the opening pages of the book. And in the case of the book I'm referencing, you know who the murderer is and who dies. And then the book, the mystery becomes why, the the why done it. So a death at the party is a why done it. But as you said, White Lotus, which is the biggest compliment you can give me, um, <laughs> You don't know who is dead in a death at the party. So you know that the narrator, Nadine, is standing over a dead body. Uh, and then we fast forward back, just like in White Lotus, to that morning where she's, you know, washing dishes at her kitchen sink and getting ready for the party. But she doesn't know that she's going to be standing over a dead body in 12 hours or 14 hours or whatever it is, but you do. So there's that element of sort of dramatic irony that takes place. And and actually, it, funnily enough, it is very similar to White Lotus. So that's, uh, I did it first. So. <laughs> <laughs> as much as Amy's work is in conversation with the work of the great thriller writers who came before her, she's not limiting herself to that canon. Her interest in cross-genre adaptations led her to a totally different source of inspiration. You know how there was an era where Shakespearean plays were being remade as like teen movies, like She's All That oh, and, yeah. and Things I Hate About You. So I would devour those movies. <laughs> and actually, if I ever was forced to teach Shakespeare, I would show those in class. As sort My of teachers the, did. They absolutely yes, did. Because, because they're able to adapt something like that in such a playful way. So with A Death at the Party, years ago, I read Mrs. Dalloway, which is a classic I think 1925 novel by Virginia Woolf. Um, And it's a woman whose name is Clarissa Dalloway. Over the course of a single day, she's planning a party, a garden party. So it's exactly the same premise as a death at the party. And then, you know, the idea of, well, what if you had, you know, you think of P.D. James or Ruth Rendell, these absolute heavyweights of mystery and thriller, as you said, from, from years and years ago. What if they had a hand? at that classic Mrs. Dalloway structure. So what if you took a classic model, but threw in a murder? So really that's what A Death at the Party is. It's the same exact premise as Mrs. Dalloway, which is a woman planning the party. And she's sort of locked in this deep reminiscence and with Nadine and A Death at the Party. Just, you know, you have one of those days where you think about everyone who's wronged you. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I ever do that, but you know, where you start having conversations in your head with people who said something mean to you once, or um, she's really locking in to like, I'm going to think about everybody that I hate right now, which she has to do because eventually she kills someone. You know, in Mrs. Dalloway, it's much more sort of um, nostalgic and and thinking more about, you know, love and family. Whereas with Nadine, obviously, there's a real mystery bent of the wrongs are much more wrong. But I loved that. That's sort of at the heart of most mystery thrillers. Something going really, really wrong in a way that most of us hope to never experience ourselves. It draws you in because you can't help but ask yourself, if things did go really, really wrong, what would you do? I see crime in, there's sort of two different branches. There's the true crime where you have like some 
super evil serial killer who's you know killing people and and has no remorse and is clearly like unwell or psychotic and then you have the branch of which is pretty significant people who kill people or do something terrible because they feel justified whether it's like revenge or or money or fear or self-defense or whatever it is. And that's really what interests me, the idea that any one of us is capable of doing something terrible if we're put in the situation. And I think that's something that we're seeing a lot of, you know, in TV shows like The White Lotus or The Last of Us recently, where it's like, what would you do to save yourself? Um, or what would you do if people you loved were in danger? And, you know, we all think of ourselves, I think, generally as moral people. But I love that. You know, I'll devour anything that's sort of more, you know, everyday domestic normal scenes like a week at a resort, but then something goes wrong or someone ends up dead. So, which is pretty wrong. That's pretty. That's a pretty big thing to go wrong. Our next guest, Naben Ruthnam, knows a thing or two about writing books where things go very wrong. Sometimes in ways that are grounded, and other times cosmically weird. Yeah, I think my main sort of biographical point, writer-wise, is I just write a lot of different things. Um, Last year, for example, I wrote an, a literary novel called A Hero of Our Time that came out with uh, Penguin Random House up here. And I also wrote a tiny horror novella called Help Meet that came out with an equally tiny horror press called Undertow, which is based in Pickering, Ontario. And of the two, I would say like the one that made the more impact would be Help Meet, which is a surprise to me, certainly. But I don't know, it's a testament to like how genre fiction and strange forms can kind of uh, have an impact that you might not think it would. Genre fiction is a world he's been writing in for a while. As mentioned, in 2022's Help Meet, he crafted a deeply unsettling horror narrative in less than 100 pages. He has also deeply unsettled readers as Nathan Ripley, the pseudonym he uses while writing thrillers, with 2018's Find You in the Dark and 2019's Your Life is Mine. But while these books all have one big thing in common— Namely, they'll creep you out. His approach to the two genres is totally different. Personally, I do think of them as separate. I know there's a lot of crossover work out there, but as someone who practices them, to me, I do keep them quite separate. I remember actually, uh, you know, Stephen King wrote a trilogy of uh, detective-based fiction stories, novels rather, recently. And the third one, like, let in supernatural stuff. And to me, that was actually kind of a disappointment. I felt like you, you got to keep these things discreet, especially if you're so rooted in one of the forms. But there's certainly a lot of interesting, actually, like I've got a couple of anthologies dating back, you know, 150 years of uh, supernatural detective stories. I really like that that particular uh, genre. Clive Barker wrote a few of those, William Hodgson. But yeah, to me, I think especially in the modern market where genre is such, is often like the selling point of a text, thriller readers especially, I feel like, like to know what they're getting into. So I think, especially from like sort of a marketing and what's on the bookshelf angle, some form of keeping those genres discreet is probably a good idea. But for the artist, you should always do whatever you want. So in terms of like kind of 
setting some boundaries around like those two different things, like what are some of the conventions that you see as belonging to one or the other? Like, what do you think of when you're sitting down to write like specifically a mystery or specifically a thriller or specifically a, th- a horror? In thriller fiction, I think, I mean, the, the strongest defining difference is that it's a social realist based model. I mean, there's a lot of psychological thriller fiction that goes off in different directions, but I think some sort of grounding in realism and characters who often are like not unlike the reader, like that allow the readers to say like, what if this happened to me in the practical circumstances of my life? I think that's a real hallmark of a lot of um, current successful thriller fiction. Horror fiction, I think what I like about it and why I increasingly gravitate towards it is it's much harder to answer your question. I think there's so many different kinds of horror and most importantly for for writers right now, there's an audience for all those different kinds of horror that allow like, you know, really subtle incursions of ghostliness or like uh, Thomas Ligotti's stories. Some, Some of them are just about the weirdness of office life, but with something really strange and creeping in the background. There's just so many different things you could do that defining it becomes really hard. This idea of marketing and genre distinction also comes up when Naben talks about why he publishes his thrillers under a pen name. It's almost completely a matter of audience. I'm thinking of who will like all of my books, and the answer is almost nobody. And (laughs) for the thrillers in particular, I was like, I need to make sure that these are their own things, that uh, readers who like and gravitate towards thrillers know what they're getting into. The pseudonym is very transparent. In the bio, it says, Nathan Ripley is to Ben Ruthenham. He lives in Parkdale, blah, blah, blah. But in the case of my horror, actually, Help Meet is, is a Ben Ruthenham book. Like, it's published under that name and as, as was my, my literary novel last year. And that was because I do think that horror readers are, this is a mass generalization, but I think that they're simply more open to encountering something different, written differently. Whereas, you know, the bulk of thriller readers which is saying, you know, 70% say. So I'm not insulting thriller readers because I am one of them. But a lot of them want a certain kind of plot and a certain kind of delivery method when they pick up a thriller novel in trade paperback in 2023. To me, actually, the distinction between literary fiction and other stuff is still an important one to make. It's just not a position of ethical superiority or, or like moral betterment. Like you're, if you're reading only literary fiction, that does not make you a better or more interesting person. But I mean, if you really enjoyed one of my Nathan Ripley novels and you really enjoyed Help Me, you might not enjoy reading a two-page long sentence in my literary novel, A Hero of Our Time, that <laughs> is like, you know, multi-clausal and about, you know, insecurity and satirizing the workplace and uh, body issues. There's all sorts of things that might not appeal to a reader of one of my other books about one of my other books. So... The genre categories are useful, at least, but as you might have guessed from the fact that I write all these different kinds of things, I also like to read all of them. So, yeah, but I still think uh, it's a good idea for like a William Gaddis book not to be marketed as a propulsive thriller because anybody who picks it up expecting that will be horrified and disgusted. (laughs) Um, And I actually wanted to ask about your pseudonym. Like, it's pretty common knowledge that Nathan Ripley is Nabin Ruthnam. I've heard you tell the story before, but tell me about the origins of your pen name. Yeah, that actually came uh, from the time I was 15 and sort of fantasizing about having a career in writing. I always knew that I sort of wanted to write both kinds of things. I wanted to write, you know, Saul Bellow, Nabokov type, like big, important, quote unquote, literary novels. 
and you know, you know, vampire movies and things like that. And I knew even then, like, geez, it would be a good idea to make sure that I have different names so people know that it's it's not not what to expect from each thing. Yeah, and I got Ripley, the last name from Aliens, which is just my, you know, a movie I watched every week at the time <laughs> and watch every other week now. And then Nathan just kind of sounded like my first name. Then as, you know, as I grew up, I realized, geez, this also seems a bit loaded racially. Like I often have to make reassure writers, particularly ones who are from diverse backgrounds or interested in diverse writing, like, no, I'm, I'm not just putting on white face. I did not do this to, to hide or obscure my identity. And yeah, I never get tired of answering that question because often it comes from a place of um, writers of color who have odd names like I do, odd in this context, uh, wondering like, geez, do I have to do this to get published? And the answer is explicitly definitely not. Yeah. One more question about the alien stuff. What genre would you classify uh, alien as? The first one, alien, is is a horror movie with uh, obviously science fiction. The second one is an action movie. Like definitely science science fiction actioner with, you know, a bit of horror. Like James Cameron always said that it was his Vietnam movie. Much like the creators of the alien films, Neben has played with mashing up horror with other genres. For example, Helpmeet is definitely a horror novella. But the scares are mixed with a healthy dose of romance. I mean, the crucial part of that is it's it's more or less focalized through his wife, who's like very devoted and strangely understanding of how kind of horrible her husband was before he got seemingly ill and uh, is sort of able to sort of navigate and shepherd his, what she thinks is going to be his death and ends up being something slightly different. But I think the way that I'm able to write about it and understand it is going through her love for him, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting to hear you describe the love aspect of it because you know, when we think of genres, we think of horror and romance being two very different things. But describing love and devotion, it seems like maybe they're not as, uh, maybe they're a more natural pairing than we think. Can you tell me about the decision to integrate that that love element into into the book? I think maybe that comes from just the fact that I, I, I don't restrict myself to the last 10 years, basically. And I think if you look back to sort of the gothic romance, if you look at things like Wuthering Heights, and then, you know, even spreading on from that to Dracula, there's always been this intermingling between like sort of high romantic love and and horror. And uh, it's also no no secret in interviews about this. Edith Wharton and Henry James are big influences of mine on this particular text. And they, again, like so much of their their books are about this sort of dance of relationships and yeah, in, indeed love, but both of them also wrote some strange ghost stories. If you think about it for more than a few seconds, it actually makes a lot of sense that horror and romance would pair well. Both are genres defined by an emotion. With horror, it's fear. And with romance, love. At least that's one way you could put it. You could also explain it the way Chris Croftrek does. What do you think it is about, you know, romance and horror that that pairs so well together? Because, like, at first glance, it seems like you know, one is all like pink and flowers and the other one is like, you know, goth and, I don't know, tombstones. It's that meme with the houses, It is right? that. It the, is the, the meme with the The goth house and the pink house. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, you got to get your blood pumping somehow. Like, I don't know. 
we just both think different things are disturbing. I read some of those books and like at the end they're married, having kids and like settling down and I'm like sweating. (laughs) (laughs) So like in what ways do you think that, you know, certain genre designations like horror or romance um, can be helpful and in what ways are they kind of limiting? Mm, I I mean, I think it's it's good and cool because it's going to give someone like an easy way into something that is going to surprise them, right? Like I can give someone a horror book who probably wouldn't have read it if I called it queer literary fiction. Mm. And it's going to challenge their ideals in a way that they didn't expect and also deliver them the punches that they wanted. It's the same with romance, I feel like now that more diverse voices are working in romance, like, yeah, you're going to see a happily ever after that you wouldn't have seen before. And that can be super powerful for people in terms of like relating to one another. So I think in both ways, like genre books are good. Genre books are good. That's basically the thesis of Chris's livelihood. I'm Chris. Uh, I own Little Ghost Books and also Sidekick. I am to genre bookstores in a trench coat. Uh, Little Ghost Books is the horror-only bookstore in Toronto, and Sidekick is a comic bookstore also in Toronto. Little Ghosts opened on Dundas West near Trinity Bellwoods Park in April of 2022. Since then, it's become a favorite haunt for horror lovers from across the city. It was born of Chris's lifelong love of all things frightening. Uh, yeah, horror is my first love, I think, uh, whether it be like movies or books or horror comics. Um, that was always like my preferred genre, monsters specifically, but horror all across the board. And as people started taking bigger leaps with horror, like in terms of body horror and queer content, the more interested I became until it kind of like hit a very large cacophony over the shutdown where I could be slated by nothing else. It's a big leap from being a horror fan to opening a horror bookstore. But while browsing the shelves at some of Toronto's other beloved independent bookshops, Chris realized there just wasn't enough space on their shelves to slake his thirst for unsettling reads. And he didn't want to rely on online retailers either. So he made a bet that other horror fans might feel the same and created the local option he was looking for. But turning an empty storefront into a thriving genre bookstore requires some careful curation. For a horror enthusiast like Chris, it's less a question of filling the shelves, because he can fill the shelves, no problem. It's more a question of what makes the cut. Horror is a wide umbrella, with an almost endless amount of subgenres and mashups underneath it. I sort of joke about literary horror, like, oh, you know, like a one or a two on the spookometer. <laughs> um, and then branching off from there, there's obviously like sci-fi elements in horror. There can be poetry that is influenced by horror. Like, it does a lot in terms of like branching into other areas. And because of that, I really think that you need a whole store to do it rather than just, like, the three or four shelves you seem to get in other bookstores. Yeah, absolutely. And you make a really good point about horror being, like, an overarching umbrella over genre fiction in itself, because there's also, like, you know, romantic horror and and different things like that. So, like, 
How do you decide what book is horror specific enough to to find a place within little ghost books? Um, we talk a lot about this like amongst the staff and my biggest um, caveat is uh, intention. So if the intention of the book is to push the boundaries of perception into a place where it's unsettling, I would put that in a horror category. So mostly everything, unless it's intending to be something else. In most bookstores and libraries, there will be at least a small selection of horror titles. But their offerings can sometimes be pretty limited to what big publishers are putting out. So a whole store dedicated to horror presents a pretty exciting opportunity. At Little Ghosts, Chris is able to fill in some of the gaps he sees in mainstream horror offerings and to feature some of the most interesting and personal work being published right now. There's still a tendency by big publishers to uh, spotlight diverse storytelling by not diverse authors, which is fine. You can definitely do that. But it's confusing to me because the people who have those experiences write the most chilling things about it. So I have more, like I say, a tendency to be looking online to find what people are saying is the weird and like gritty stuff. And then getting those authors to send me things from their self-published, like cachet, I'm buying books out of people's closets, I'm doing weird stuff, like, because I want our shelves to really showcase what's going on, like, right now, uh, and not necessarily what's, like, air quotes popular, because I don't actually know that some of the big publishers know what they're doing when it comes to genre fiction, And that's becoming less true, obviously. Um, There are hits, for sure, but I don't think that's like a picture of what's going on. The same way that if you just went and saw movies that made it to theater and never went to any like independent horror movie festival, you would not have a picture of what's going on in horror for movies either. Um, one area where that seems particularly true is in uh, queer fiction and queer horror in particular. Do you think that horror is like inherently queer or has like an inherent queerness to it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell yes. me more. <laughs> um, I mean, I think horror is inherently queer. I think horror is inherently other. So that could mean queer, it could mean anything, right? So I think people who have felt alien in their experience can give people a perspective that is inherently unpleasant. And people don't really like to be reflected that back, especially people in positions of privilege. So I'm not really like that surprised when big publishers don't want to take a risk on something that maybe shows them an uglier side of what is out there. No one wants to look at their own dark underbelly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How much of your job as a bookseller is breaking down expectations and expanding readers' ideas of what horror can be? I mean, we do so much of our business on the hand sell. So, uh, yeah, that's basically the conversation we're having all the time. Luckily, because it's so clear what we do, it's mostly done through a lens of excitement. People come here and are like, give me something queer, give me something weird, 
challenge me, notice me, stare at me. And I'm like, okay, that's great. What's your thing? What do you like? What does it for you? Selling horror is like selling drugs. I'm like, what's going to mess you up? <laughs> like, what type of trip are we going on here? And then sort of like opening your trench coat and being like, I got this for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that brings up a really good point. Like as a bookseller, what are what are some of the pieces of information that you need in order to make a good book recommendation to to someone? That to me is the big one. I'm like, what what really gets to the core of you? What's going to bother you? And do you want to be bothered? Like, mm. do you want to be emotionally messed up? Do you want to feel bad in your skin? Like, what are we looking for here? Do you like a psychological bend? Do we want supernatural or we just don't like humans today? Like, what's going on? Um, the more detail you can give me, the better my recommendation is going to be. And I've definitely been in here and given someone some upsetting recommendations. And they were like, can you maybe dial that back? And I'm like, okay. And I give them some softer recs. And then the person who was standing in the store behind them goes, that first thing, like the the weird stuff that you had for them that didn't work, can you give me those again and maybe worse? And, <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, yep. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's actually like a lot of interactivity I find in the store. Like the best days are the days where there's like a bunch of people just who stop doing what they're doing and then everyone's paying attention to you describing the most terrible stuff. <laughs> One thing that I appreciate about Little Ghosts is that there really is a book for everyone. Like my husband Jimmy, who composes music for Read the North. Jimmy loves horror, so Little Ghosts is pretty much his ideal bookstore. Meanwhile, I'm usually up for like one ghost on the scary index at best. But I found books I love there too. While Little Ghosts is the perfect shop for big-time horror enthusiasts, it's also a pretty good place for the horror cautious to dip a toe into those darker waters. Honestly, the, I, I do believe that. I believe there's, there's books for you. There are things like that are going to be lukewarm or like just gothic or maybe what you need is it not to end so grimly. Like there is, there's a lot of different ways for you to find what's going to work for you. And, like, if you don't think you like horror, I I really challenge that as, like, a concept because, like, I think more things sort of fall into that umbrella than, than people really think do. And also there's a lot of fun horror that just plays with the tropes and, like, reminds you that, like, living is quite absurd and scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I really like the books where, you know, I go on a journey and I'm a little scared, but at the end there's, like, resolution. You know, like, I like to feel good at the end of the book. And I think my husband is completely the opposite, and he likes to feel, like, completely unsettled. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would I would prefer that, like, yeah, everyone's ruined and nothing's <laughs> going to go well. Uh, I'm, I'm a body horror guy. 
Um, yeah. yeah, I really like it when uh, someone's skin is sloughing off or there's <laughs> things beneath your eyeballs or, like, something's going wrong. And I don't know, like, you're pregnant right now. It's a bit <laughs> yeah. that. Like, I, there's – having a human body is – wild and terrible I don't know as a trans person I gotta live in this thing and I'm not happy about it so <laughs> I like my fiction to be a little bit like that just like oh yeah I know isn't it terrible and I'm like yeah great amazing <laughs> tell me about it but I understand why also it can be so redemptive to see a main character go through literal hell and come out the other side and everything to be okay at the end and we definitely have a lot of that as well. Like the horror happily ever afters, like the final yeah. girls, like the the redemptive quality of a story where someone can make it mm -hmm. through impossible odds. And that's why I'm like, I don't know. I think there's a horror book for you. Like, <laughs> Sure, these books can be scary. But you know what else is scary? Living in the world right now. There is so much fear and vulnerability packed into the experience of existing as a human being from one day to the next. It can feel awful to know that so much is outside of our control. But reading a book that makes you feel terrible, that's something you can control. I think, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons, uh, people feel that way like right now they feel that way when they get here they feel that way during the day they feel that way all the time and to have cause to feel that way and exercise those muscles and release that cortisol is soothing because when it's over it's over and the dread you're feeling right now is never over here's Naben one more time I think being scared in a context where you can I mean, I, I, I go to the theatrical experience, like going to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Exorcist in a full cinema, and to sort of share the sense of like highly adrenalized terror with all these other people and still know that you're in a safe context. That's something interesting and special. And I think, you know, there's a whole other artistic collection of reasons that I don't think have to do with that, but that's the most important one in terms of, I think, what makes it work on a chess level. Or, to put it more bluntly, in the end, the Grim Reaper comes for us all. In the meantime, you might as well read a book and feel better about it. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 3 of our second season of Read the North. The show is hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced and edited by Quentin Bradshaw. Spooky theme music and scoring are by James Ellerkamp. Production assistance and episode artwork is by Haley Richardson. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Amy Stewart, Naben Ruthnam, and Chris Kroftuk. If you're enjoying this series, please consider supporting the show by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing it with all of your friends. Read the North is a co-production of The Word on the Street Toronto and Met Radio. For more community radio programming, you can tune in and listen live at metradio.ca. To keep up with the word on the street and all the latest festival news, be sure to give us a follow on social media at Toronto WOTS or sign up for our newsletter at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. New episodes will be released bi-weekly all summer long. Tune in live at 1280 a.m. on the dial or at metradio.ca every other Wednesday and subscribe to Read the North on the podcast platform of your choice. 
Thanks for listening.